Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. Now this week we have Ubuntu planning to offer an immutable version of their desktop distribution. The only one to date to use snaps instead of flatpaks. We have a lot of stuff happening in GNOME, like a flatpak syncing tool, a real light theme, including the GNOME shell, and a potential revamp of fractional scaling. And we have some more details about Mint 21.2, more work on portals, and a lot more. So before we dive in, uh, this is the usual reminder that you can find all the links to all the articles I used in the show notes, and the usual reminder that this show is still for now user-funded, so if you want to keep it this way without ads or sponsors, you can also click the link in the show notes to support it. Now let's get into it. So let's talk about Ubuntu. Uh, They already have an immutable distribution, which is called Ubuntu Core, but it's not meant for desktop usage. It's more tailored for Internet of Things devices, uh, all non-desktop purposes, basically. It's a smaller version. It's not meant for desktop use, but it is an immutable distro. But they are apparently working on a desktop version of an immutable distro as confirmed in a comment by an Ubuntu developer in the OMG Ubuntu website. Uh, Basically, they will offer at least an immutable variant of Ubuntu for the next LTS, for 24.04. So it will be in a little bit less than a year. The current uh, Deb and Snap hybrid version will still, of course, be available for download. So you won't have to switch to an immutable version if you're an Ubuntu user. You can keep using the thing you already know. But it's still pretty interesting uh, because, well, this one is focused on desktop users. Uh, It's not meant for a niche or an edge case. It's meant for pure desktop. And so you can expect a read-only base complete with Snap applications on top of that. That's basically the main concept of an immutable distro. You've got a base that you cannot write upon. The system is, as it says in the name, immutable. It's read-only. But the applications you install are installed through a containerized system. And generally, it's been Flatpak. Uh, Fedora Silverblue, uh, Vanilla OS, I think Blend OS mostly also relies on Flatpaks. It's generally been the theme of these distros. It's like a base that you cannot really alter and you get applications that are containerized and and thus can run on any type of base, no matter what the underlying libraries are, and that just install in a directory that is writable in your home directory and don't require access to the full root file system. This is generally much more secure and generally also a bit more stable. But this is the first one that we'd see that actually only focuses on Snap packages. I think BlendOS lets you install Snaps on top of their immutable base, but generally the rest is Flatpak, or at least mainly focused on Flatpak. There's probably a way to add Snaps onto them if you want. And so there are no details yet uh, on the model that they use, if they will have like atomic updates to the base or image base updates or anything else, but it's still pretty interesting. Uh, Ubuntu has really been going all in on snaps recently with generally the whole KDE gear compilation being now packaged as snaps. Uh, You get a ton of apps that are being done this way and the various problems that they had are being ironed out. Uh, They regularly talk about a specific uh, snap application and how they fix the various issues. 
The main one that comes to my mind is Firefox, where they shared a series of blog posts about how they made it faster, how they improved the font selection, the support for various plugins. And so basically now the Snap version of Firefox is just as good as the Flatpak version of Firefox. Uh, so you would, you would be hard pressed to find any significant difference between these or even between Firefox being installed through a normal package. And so some of these improvements trickle down to other Snaps as well as time passes. And now Ubuntu will also package the Cups printing stack as a snap, Cups being the whole thing that lets you use a printer on Linux and on macOS, incidentally. Uh, and they plan to use that Cups snap as the default in 23.10, which basically is probably the last remaining thing that they needed to snap before they could make a fully immutable desktop distro. They even have some graphics drivers available as snaps now. And if I'm honest, for this kind of use case, for an immutable distro, snaps kind of make more sense than flat packs, because snaps are regularly used to also package command line programs. Flatpak can technically do it, but you would be hard pressed to find a Flatpak uh, command line interface app. There are a few, I think there's NeoVim, uh, but that's about it, uh, that, that I know about anyways. They are not as widely known or distributed, and the Snap Store, with all its faults and its proprietary backend, does have uh, some command line interface programs as well in it, whereas FlatHub is exclusively focused on graphical applications. And so if your system isn't writable at all, then you might as well use a packaging format that lets you install any type of program you want, not just graphical apps, because it lets you avoid resorting to containers which although they are pretty awesome, are also not as user-friendly as just installing an app from a graphical store or the command line. They're, they're an extra layer of disk space usage, of complexity for users, and yeah, if you can have an immutable distro that doesn't need containers at all, then snaps are probably, they probably have a better shot of accomplishing that than flatpaks. That said, I still think that Flatpak is a far superior packaging format as Snaps, if only because there's no proprietary backend and it's like it's decentralized if you want it to, where Snaps cannot really be decentralized. But yeah, it kind of makes sense on an immutable base to use Snaps instead of Flatpaks. So I, I don't think it's a bad idea. Now, we're going to have a big segment about GNOME because there are a bunch of things happening for them uh, that, I, that I noticed this week. So if you hate GNOME and you don't want to hear about GNOME, you're going to have to look at the time codes to advance a little bit because there are a few things to talk about. So first is the Google Summer of Code program, which, if you don't know, is a Google-sponsored funding of various internships for the open source community. And regularly, KDE, GNOME, and a lot of other open source projects get students that, well, learn how to work with the open source community and contribute some interesting things. And so for GNOME, uh, this year, there are two main things. Uh, the first one is FlatSync, and the second one is revamping the system settings a bit. So FlatSync is a new GNOME tool that will let users sync their installed Flatpaks between different computers. Uh, so basically you install Flatpaks on your desktop and your laptop automatically will update their list of installed apps and add the ones that you added on your desktop, if that's something you want. It, it is obviously entirely optional. It's just meant to help people who have a similar workflow on different computers achieve the same level of compatibility. You don't have to remember which app you have and install something that you forgot to install. It just kept in sync. And I think it's a, it's a great tool. So currently, if you wanted to do that, you would have to do it manually or create your own script to automatically list all the flat packs you have installed, 
store that somewhere in the cloud, have another script running on your other computer that scans it, this little file, uh, lists the apps, sees the ones that it already has. So basically making a diff of the Flatpak list on your desktop and on your laptop, for example, and then installing the ones that aren't present or removing the ones that aren't that are on the laptop but not on the desktop anymore. It's it's doable, but it's it's not user friendly and it's not super easy. FlatSync would do this automatically for people who want that feature. So it would basically just use a dbus daemon that lists all the installed Flatpaks, pushes that list to something like a GitHub gist, but it could probably also interface with any cloud storage you have and push that list to your, I don't know, Google Drive or Nextcloud storage if you have an online account configured. And so that list can then be read by another computer that's also running FlatSync, and all the apps can be automatically added or removed when a change happens. And of course, they are also planning a graphical user interface app to handle all of that. I don't really know what kind of features they'd want to have, but having the ability to pin a specific app to a computer would be cool. So saying, even if this one is not present on another computer, I want to keep it on this one, or never install this app on this computer, I don't need it there, uh, but sync everything else. Those kind of stuff would be pretty cool, but I don't know if that's planned or not. So work has already started on FlatSync, uh, with the first step being making sure that the daemon can auto-start with the computer and doesn't need to be started manually each time you boot. And also setting the correct permissions for the daemon when it's packaged as a Flatpak, because apparently the FlatSync daemon will also be available as not a Flatpak for some reason, but I guess it makes sense if it... I don't know. There's got to be some use case where it makes sense to have it as a Flatpak. Now, the second Google uh, Summer of Code project for GNOME is revamping the settings a little bit. Uh, the GNOME settings are by no means crowded, uh, especially if you compare them to something like KDE or even just Cinnamon and Linux Mint, but they, there's a, a sizable sidebar that you have to scroll through to get to everything. And a little bit of your organization wouldn't hurt. So what they want to do is put a few of those settings inside a single panel, which would basically act as a subcategory. And those panels would be the region and language settings, the date and time settings, uh, everything that regards uh, creating or managing users, uh, remote desktop, and the about page, plus something called system start options, which seems like it's new because I don't think I've ever seen that uh, in GNOME settings before. And so all of this will be moved to a separate panel called system. And so when you click on system in the sidebar, you get a choice between all these different sub panels, and then you can change those settings. Nothing super game-changing or anything. Like, it makes sense to reorganize stuff, but it's not going to transform the way you use GNOME or, or harm it either. It's, it's just a change, but it's more organized this way. But FlatSync, on the other hand, looks pretty interesting uh, because I use uh, multiple computers very often, at least my desktop and my laptop, and sometimes I have another laptop on the side as well, uh, depending on wh whether I lent it to someone or for now it lives at my girlfriend's house, but it could move back to somewhere else. Uh, and so having all my flat packs synced would be pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I th I'll be watching this thing pretty closely and see how well it works and what kind of features it has. It definitely needs the ability to select per app uh, if you want to sync it or not, because, well, there are some things I use on my desktop that I don't need on my laptop and vice versa. Now, still on GNOME, there are two features that are sort of being teased or sort of starting being merged, but we're not entirely sure if they're going to make it for GNOME 45 or if they're going to make it at all, but they look like they're getting some work done at least. So the first one is a full light theme. 
For now, GNOME has light theme or dark theme, and the dark theme makes everything dark, your apps, your shell, your everything, but the light theme only makes the apps light themed. Uh, the panel stays dark, the quick settings menu stays dark, the various pop-ups in the GNOME shell stay dark, uh, the various menus of the GNOME shell stay dark as well, and the background for the overview and the apps grid also stay in dark mode, which is not very cohesive because, well, you want a light theme, so why would you want some dark themed items in there? And so it looks like for GNOME 45, there might be an option to enable a full-on light theme that is complete with the whole GNOME shell, all its menus and everything. It doesn't look like it's going to be the default for the light theme though. The light theme will still remain this mixed mode that we currently have, and the new full light theme would be enabled through a deconf option, probably because they still want more time to test things out, see how it looks, if the contrast is good enough, if it's understandable or legible enough. It's generally the GNOME approach to test things out and like inform people there's this option, but it's experimental, enable it if you want, and we'll see if we turn it on uh, in the next release. So you would have to manually enable this in deconf, but this is still interesting because yeah, if, if you want a light theme, why would you want some dark items in your panel? Now apparently even with this full-on light theme, uh, the overview and the app grid will still remain uh, dark. There would still be this dark background behind it because apparently it's not a color choice as much as a legibility thing. Uh, having a dark background over your app icons or your workspaces make them pop a lot more and so your eye is naturally drawn onto the elements that you actually want to interact with, which makes sense in that context. So this is still in development, but the merge request for it has just been accepted in GNOME. So this option should logically be present in GNOME 45 and we'll be able to test it out. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to give it a shot uh, in the next uh, GNOME video where I will review GNOME 45. Now, on top of that, a GNOME might also get a redesigned user interface for fractional scaling to let you preview the text size before choosing a scaling factor. Now, for now, it's just a mock-up from Alan Day. Uh, but generally, what this person mocks up tends to end up being developed and being added. So my guess is that this will happen, maybe not in GNOME 45, because it might be a little bit too late for that. It's supposed to release in September. Yeah, there's still some time. Uh, but yeah, it, it might not land soon, but it's something they're working on. And what's interesting about it is not necessarily the UI because yes, having a little preview of how big the text would be with different scaling factors is better than just a regular slider and trying to guess where you're supposed to land. Uh, it's basically what macOS did. I don't know if they still do that, but on their laptops with retina displays, you could at some point change uh, the size of the elements and you had the exact same kind of little previews with just some lorem ipsum text uh, that was bigger and bigger as the scaling went on. That's not what's interesting. What's interesting is that for now, uh, GNOME does not officially have uh, fractional scaling. You can enable it and some distros do out of the box, but it's still an experimental feature that you have to turn on in deconf, whether it's your distro or yourself, somebody turned it on. It's not in the vanilla GNOME settings which means that if there are mockups being worked on, and if this ends up being done, it means that GNOME might consider fractional scaling okay to be included as a non-experimental feature, which would be awesome. And my guess is that's the case, because now the Wayland protocol officially supports fractional scaling. It didn't before. It did it with a hack, where it rendered at the nearest integer, and then just scaled it uh, like linearly, 
which meant everything was sort of blurry and didn't look good. With the addition of this true full-on Wayland fractional scaling protocol, desktop environments can take advantage of it, and KDE already has, and GNOME probably already is doing that as well, which means that now fractional scaling is ready, at least on Wayland. I doubt it will ever get out of the experimental phase on X11. Nobody works on features for X11. Nobody cares anymore uh, apart from users, but developers just don't want to work on it. So it will probably be limited to Wayland as a native non-experimental feature. But it makes sense. Uh, now that you have the protocol, if GNOME implements support in GTK or in LibidVita or in Mutter, I don't exactly know where you're supposed to implement all of that. But if they implement uh, support for this fractional scaling protocol in Wayland, then they need an interface uh, to showcase it. And GNOME is generally not super content with just having sliders. Uh, they tend to want some more visual feedback because they're quite focused on accessibility and legibility. So my guess is maybe GNOME 45 supports the fractional scaling protocol in Wayland and maybe we get this new interface as well, which is interesting because finally it's officially supported. Well, it would be officially supported and it makes me happy because it's 2023 and fractional scaling should be available everywhere, whatever your toolkit, your desktop environment or whatever, or even your display server, you should be able to do fractional scaling. High-resolution displays are not something new and untested or anything. And even though, yes, you could argue it's not super efficient and you should not buy a device that is 1440p at 13 inches because, of course, everything is going to be too small and you're going to need fractional scaling, which is going to impact your battery life and your GPU. But fact is, people do buy those devices and do need fractional scaling. So at some point, you can just say, we're not going to implement it because yeah, we think it's stupid. If everyone needs it, you implement it. That's it. There's no discussion about it. So I'm glad that this might finally happen. It might be wishful thinking, but I think there are good clues that this will happen soon. Now, let's move away from GNOME and talk about Mint a little bit. Uh, so Linux Mint 21.2 should release this month. It should release in June. Uh, it's expected at the end of June, if everything goes well. And the development cycle for 21.2 is now closed, which means they don't accept any new features or anything, only bug fixes and, and, and just fixes in general. And so the beta should be out relatively soon. And generally for Linux Mint, the beta is followed by the official release one or two weeks after, which is quite fast. And that's also because their development cycles are longer than for most distros. So Mint 21.2, we already talked about a bunch of things. It, it will bring like a revamped uh, appearance settings to choose a dark mode immediately or light mode uh, to just change the theme in one drop down menu instead of changing the theme in five different places and also implementing support for accent colors uh, via an accent color selector instead of changing the theme with the accent color baked in. So th these are a few of the highlights. The theme, the icon themes will also get a few revamps here and there. But what's interesting is that they now said that they're going to add touchpad and touchscreen gestures to Linux Mint 21.2, which is, for me, the last thing missing for Mint to be a really awesome desktop distro on a laptop. Uh, for me, it was the last remaining thing that made it a little bit less interesting to use than GNOME, for example, because on the laptop, for me at least, touchpad gestures are mandatory. If there is no good touchpad gesture support, I will not use that distro or that desktop environment on my laptop because it's just way more efficient for window management and workspace management just using your fingers on a touchpad. It's, it's better. It's easier for me. 
And so it's gonna get that in Mint 21.2. Uh, Clément Lefebvre, which is the lead developer and creator of Mint, uh, says that these gestures will be supported for window management, workspace management, window tiling, and media controls, and that they will work on touchpads, touchscreens, and they also added tablets, but a tablet is a touchscreen, it's basically only a touchscreen. So we don't really know exactly how they will work. There's no demo, there's no video presenting them, we don't really know if you can configure them yet, but knowing Cinnamon, I would be surprised if there wasn't a way to choose between three or four fingers and choose what action is done with which gesture. They, they do like their configuration. They're basically the KDE, but of GTK. So yeah, I, I think they're going to have a tool for that pretty soon if it's not there out of the box. And we don't know if there's going to be, if there are going to be one-to-one gestures. Uh, one-to-one being the way, for example, Gnome does it on Wayland. Uh, as you move your fingers, the content moves with your finger. If you stop moving, the animation stops as well, and you can go back and forward. Uh, they're generally way easier on the eyes. They're easier to understand because, well, you know what's happening. When you move your fingers, stuff moves. When you stop moving your fingers, stuff stops moving. Uh, maybe there will be one-to-one. My guess is that they won't be because Linux Mint is still stuck on X11. They are not implementing Wayland support just yet, uh, or at least they won't support it for Mint 21.2 as far as I know. And so on X11, implementing one-to-one gestures is way harder because you have to bake that into the window manager itself instead of relying on, well, basic APIs that you could use. They are harder to do. Uh, the only distro that I know of that has one-to-one gestures on X11 is Elementary OS, and that's because they worked uh, with the developer of Touchegg, or Touchegg, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. Uh, they work with this developer to implement that support directly in their window manager. And so they get super smooth one-to-one gestures on X11, but no other distro has that. They generally don't even have uh, touchpad gestures on X11 at all, and you have to add them yourself with libinput gestures or Touchegg, but they act as keyboard shortcuts uh, when basically you do the action on your touchpad and when your fingers have traveled a sufficient amount of space, then the action happens. So for example, you move your fingers and when you lift your fingers up, uh, then the desktop switches to the next desktop or your window gets maximized or whatever. They're not smooth, they're not easy to read and they're just not as good. My guess is that this is what they're going to implement because on X11, that's way easier. Uh, On Wayland, the one-to-one gestures are just better. But still, it's a big step forward because, yeah, for a desktop distro, not having touchpad gestures, like, it's, it sucks, and Cinnamon just didn't have them, which now will be fixed, and that's really cool. So you can expect a dedicated video on Linux Mint 21.2 on my YouTube channel or my Peertube channel, no, no matter where you, you watch the videos I make, if you watch them. If you didn't know, this is not just a podcast. I have a YouTube channel uh, that, that is like way more successful than this podcast. So if you want to learn more about Linux and the various things that are happening, you can head over there. The link is in the show notes as well. So I'll cover Linux Mint 21.2 as soon as it releases and we'll showcase everything Uh, that is new and interesting in there, but I'm expecting to like it quite a bit because with the revamped appearance settings, the little touch-ups to the theme, and the new touchpad gestures, I'd be surprised if it didn't end up on one of my laptops somewhere permanently. Now, still on desktop Linux, there is some work planned for portals, uh, which, if you don't know, uh, is a kind of middleware that lets sandboxed applications, so for example, flat packs or snaps, communicate with the system through a permission system. Uh, So for example, a Flatpak app that wants to access a file will call the file picker portal, which will then open the window, 
as the file picker portal. It's not the application opening the file picker, it's the portal itself. And the portal knows what permissions the app has, and so only shows the files that the app can have access to. And when you select that file, it's the portal passing exclusively that file to the app, so the app doesn't have access to everything else on your disk. Uh, this is just a good security measure. And so these portals are numerous. Uh, there's a file picker portal, there's a portal for screenshots, screen sharing, a lot of things. And so they're getting some work done specifically to ensure that the right portal, the right implementation of portals is used on the right desktop. Uh, the implementations are all pretty complete and they all work really well if you use GNOME on Wayland or KDE on Wayland. Nowadays, like, like recently, the latest version of GNOME or KDE on Wayland, you're never going to have a problem with a Flatpak application not opening something correctly or not having access to a file it's supposed to have access to. If it doesn't have access to something, it's because the app doesn't have the permission to access it. But the portals itself are working exactly as intended, and they cover basically everything you might want to do, including screen sharing. Uh, if you want to share your screen or a window or something, this works, for example, in OBS. If it doesn't work, it's because the app doesn't support Wayland nat natively and doesn't support the portals. And so these implementations are complete. And they are many. Uh, there's the implementation for GTK. There's an implementation for GNOME. There's one for KDE. And there are others. Uh, and this means that if you run apps from multiple desktop environments or multiple toolkits, sometimes a sandboxed app will open a window that is not what you were expecting, like a GTK file picker for a cute app in KDE, for example or a KDE file picker for a GTK app, because the app you installed uh, through the sandbox is using the KDE file picker by default. And so it can be pretty confusing sometimes, and it gives an impression of not being completely finished or polished. But there's a mechanism being worked on uh, to solve exactly that problem. Basically, each desktop environment will be able to state which implementation they want to use globally or per portal. For example, you could say, I only always want the GNOME file picker, so give me the GNOME implementation of portals. Or you could say, I generally prefer the GDK implementation, but for screenshots or screen sharing, give me the KD implementation. Or give me my own implementation if you've developed something that fixed your guidelines better as a desktop. And of course, since it's a plain text config file, users could also tweak it. So basically, you could set your own preferences if you want. For example, if you use a window manager and not a desktop environment, but you use Flatpak applications, what's the implementation that your apps are going to pick? Because you're not using GNOME, you're not using KDE, so is it the app that decides? Well, now you will be able to decide. You will be able to say, on my system with my window manager, I always want the KDE file picker, for example. And you're all set, and it's going to be the default for every app, and every portal will just refer to that implementation and open the correct window that you need. So this, this is interesting work. It's not groundbreaking or anything, but it's going to add to the feeling of polish and, and just having something that works nicely as intended, uh, looks normal on your desktop. And I think it's really cool work. So I wanted to showcase it uh, in the podcast. Now let's talk about hardware a little bit. And the Linux Foundation Europe just launched the RISE project, which is a collaborative effort meant to push the RISC-V architecture uh, by basically making the whole open source stack and developing open source on this architecture way easier. So if you don't know about RISC-V, it is an instruction set architecture, much like x86 or ARM, uh, but it's royalty-free and it's open source. 
So basically, you can refer to this implementation and develop your own design for your own CPU, whether it's a super low-power, most efficient one, or a full-blown workstation CPU. And you don't have to pay any licensing fees to anyone, contrary to something like ARM, for example, where if you want to design your own ARM CPU uh, for, for your company, for example, you have to pay ARM to get access to their designs and to their instruction set. Uh, Apple pays ARM some money uh, to be able to design their Apple Silicon. Qualcomm, for example, also pays ARM uh, to design their, their CPUs for Android phones. So it makes sense that the Linux Foundation would want to help this open source architecture mature and to ensure that the whole open source software stack that we use every day is properly supported on it. And this project is not just yet another announcement from the Linux Foundation because it's supported by a lot of big names. Uh, there's Google, there's Imagination Technologies, which tend to make VP, uh, not VPUs, GPUs uh, for, for various uh, mobile chipsets. I think they make the PowerVR uh, GPUs. There's MediaTek, which creates, for now, ARM CPUs and GPU combos. There's NVIDIA, there's Qualcomm, which is also an ARM CPU maker. There's Red Hat, there's Samsung, which also makes ARM CPUs, their Exynos line. And there's also Intel, which does not make ARM CPUs. They make x86 CPUs, but maybe they want to expand to other uh, architectures because they're not just a CPU maker, they're also a founder. So maybe they would want to like extend, extend their business operations to RISC-V, who knows? And so all of these big names will work together to try and accelerate the adoption of RISC-V, especially for Linux distros, for firmware, for virtualization, and for software development tools. And I don't really know why all of these actors uh, would join the project. Like some of them make sense, uh, like uh, MediaTek, Qualcomm, Samsung. Like if they can get away with making RISC-V CPUs instead of ARM CPUs, they'll save a bunch of money uh, for their smartphones and for their, and for their uh, CPUs that they sell because there are no licensing fees. Uh, Imagination Technologies probably want to piggyback on it so they can add their GPU parts uh, to an SOC implementing a RISC-V CPU. Intel, probably to try and stay on top of what's happening and make sure that they can jump on the RISC-V bandwagon if it starts to improve. NVIDIA, probably because they tried to buy ARM but it failed. And so if they ever wanted to make their own CPUs to go with their GPUs, maybe they'd want to do RISC-V CPUs, who knows? And Google... Google, I'd say it's probably for data centers because if they could replace a lot of x86 CPUs that just draw a ton of power by equivalent RISC-V CPUs that they designed that might use less power and are specifically built for data centers, maybe they could save millions each month on just energy costs. So it makes sense. And there's also probably the looming specter of Apple Silicon, which basically has put to shame every other CPU on the market in terms of performance per watt. It cannot quite match the highest rated Intel x86 CPUs in terms of pure power, but it can be pretty close and it draws a lot less energy uh, doing so. So maybe they're starting to be a bit scared that Apple might just have such a technological lead in terms of CPUs that no one can catch up. And so they want to invest on another architecture that could compete. And what better than an architecture where you don't have to pay licensing fees, I guess. It's, uh, it's pretty obvious. So it's pretty cool. And I personally really like this architecture, just the fact that it's open source and that everyone can just contribute to it, create their own CPU designs. 
So I hope this project, this RISE initiative from the Linux Foundation uh, goes somewhere and that we can actually see some Linux devices running RISC-V CPUs with all the apps we know and like running correctly on it. It's probably a long ways off, but yeah, I'm excited for it. Now, something that is completely unrelated, I talked about Reddit monetizing their API recently, and while it looked like they were going to do it in a relatively healthy way, as they said they would still allow like reasonable users of their APIs, it turns out they went the Twitter route and they decided to basically close their API down completely because the prices they want for access are completely insane. The developers of the Apollo client, which is apparently not just for Reddit, if I understand it correctly, but is also a very popular Reddit client. And Reddit clients are a category that I would think is reasonable use, like a third-party client. Makes sense to authorize API users for that. But apparently it's not, and so their developers will have to pay. And they would have to pay $20 million per year if they wanted to keep the same user base as they already have. Which means that unless something changes in their pricing policy at Reddit, this Apollo client is dead for Reddit. It's done. Reddit charges apparently $12,000 for 50 million API requests, which on paper might sound like a lot, but Apollo, for example, has made 7 billion of these requests up until now. So much like Twitter before it, Reddit has decided to shut down the gates to their community. Uh, this pricing strategy probably prices out virtually everyone that might be interested in using this API for anything other than a personal project. And so it probably will end up having the same repercussions as with Twitter, with a sizable part of the community just leaving the platform because some people are very peculiar about the clients and the apps they want to use and if they can't use the one they like, they will just stop using the platform entirely. And I understand why a platform such as Reddit, which has apparently a lot of valuable information, personally, every time I get in there, it's just shit posts and toxicity and I never find what I'm looking for, which is why I'm planning to probably block all Reddit results in all my searches because they always take me to somewhere I don't want to be with answers that don't fit my problem. But apparently a lot of people do find a lot of value in Reddit's data and, and, and help. And so it makes sense if this platform attracts people uh, that, that want to look for help, it makes sense that they want to like monetize this kind of data and this database, especially in a world where you have AI tools that will just scrap your entire website and use that data without your consent and probably at least for now not suffer any repercussions. But there's got to be a line between a complete theft of your whole database by an AI tool you never authorized to use it and a third-party client. It's not the same thing. Like, people want to use a third-party client to access your service. Why make them pay? It's weird. Treating the, the two as they're, as like they're the same feels completely out of touch for me. But yeah, that's another reminder that building your whole business on top of a completely closed-down platform is just not a good idea. And that goes double for me as a YouTuber. Like, making my whole business exclusively on YouTube is also exactly as stupid. Like the day YouTube decides that they don't want me in there or that they don't want to pay me anything from ads, I'm done and my business is closed. So same goes for third-party clients for stuff that you don't control. They're, they're just not a good business idea. Or at least you have to be prepared to accept the complete loss of your business when the company you like decides to do something that you don't like.
Now there's something I missed last week, but that's quite fun. Uh, it looks like the algorithm to generate Windows product keys has been cracked and re-implemented to work even without the original activation servers. But that's only for Windows XP, so don't start like being overly rejoiced by the fact that you won't need to activate your Windows 11 copy. Yes, you still need that. Uh, it's just for Windows XP. But you can now basically completely activate a new Windows XP install using just a generated key. It's not an official key, but it works and it activates the system, even though the activation servers for XP have been down for a while. And it's not a crack. It's not like you're bypassing certain DLLs or removing the system security or integrity things that Microsoft has in Windows XP. It's exactly like if you're activating Windows XP with an official CD key, but it's something that you cannot do legally right now because, well, the activation servers are down, but that you can do with a, like, a generated key that has nothing to do with Microsoft, which is pretty fun. Now, of course, you should not use Windows XP today in any production environment. This system has been unsupported for a long time. It's slow, it's insecure, it does not support the latest web browsers. Do not use it as your main system. But if you want to run it in a VM for a minute, or if you have old hardware that will not be connected to the internet, it could be quite fun to have a nice trip down nostalgia lane and just experience how bad of an operating system it is. Because people have rose-tinted glasses about XP, let me tell you. I used it when it just released, and it was horrendous. It was incompatible with everything from Windows 98. It just was slow, it was bloated, it always got viruses all the time, even with an antivirus. And until SP2 was released, it was just a complete nightmare to use. And it looked horrible even at the time, and it still looks horrible today. But it's still fun to take it for a trip. Like, if you're nostalgic from these days, just try and remove those rose-tinted glasses and, and see how bad it is, because it's really, really bad. Okay, and let's finish this with the gaming news. So first, we have a new release of Proton Experimental, which is a big, big one this time. It gets the latest versions of DXVK, and VKD3D Proton with major improvements to the graphics pipeline to like shader compilation, less stutters, better performance, and it also has affixes for a lot of games, and it makes a lot more games playable, like Blood Rain 1 and 2, Gunfire Reborn, Super Bomberman R, Ghost Recon Breakpoint, Minecraft Legends, or Prop Knight. It's a huge release, you don't have anything to do to get it, it's just going to automatically download from your Steam client, and at least for me, Proton Experimental is the default for every game I install that is not in the Steam Play compatibility list. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I'll test it out and see if it makes a difference in some games that I currently play on the current version of Proton Experimental. Now we also have an update to the Heroic Games Launcher, uh, version 2.8. This new release brings a DLC manager for your Epic Games, so now when you install a game, you can pick which DLC you want to install if you don't want to get them all. And they're also sorted inside of the game view instead of being shown as complete games, which uh, Heroic Games Launcher used to do that at some point. You can also sideload browser applications and games to get launchers uh, for them, but you cannot use anything using DRM just yet. So you can't create a launcher for Netflix, because that won't work, but you can create a launcher for Xbox Cloud Streaming, for example. So you can launch it straight from Heroic if you use that, which is cool. 
And finally, Heroic will also auto-download Wine if it's not installed on your system. So you have one less manual step to go through when you install the Heroic Games Launcher. Uh, it's probably more useful for beginners, but it's still interesting. And it comes with the usual slew of bug fixes, improvements to the performance, to the theme, to the various settings windows. It's a must-have update, grab it as soon as you can. And this week we also have a new beta driver for NVIDIA GPUs, which should improve Wayland support, uh, which is really cool. Uh, first, it fixes a big issue for people using hybrid laptops with an AMD integrated GPU and an NVIDIA dedicated GPU, so the AMD plus NVIDIA combo. Uh, basically, before you couldn't really use the NVIDIA dedicated GPU specifically to run an app. Uh, you basically had to run it either in full AMD iGPU mode or full NVIDIA dedicated GPU mode, but you couldn't really work in hybrid graphics mode. And so with this new beta driver, apparently it's fixed, which is cool. They also added support for the latest DMA buff Wayland protocol and plugged it for X Wayland as well. And this will enable multi-GPU configurations and hybrid laptops to work much, much better on Wayland and should improve performance a lot for these use cases. And these new drivers also give a boost to Minecraft Java on the RTX 3000 series GPUs and it enables dynamic boost for older GPUs, uh, which means that, yeah, your older GPUs should run better with the newer graphics drivers if your older GPU is still in the range that is supported by these latest graphics drivers. And it also adds support for more Vulkan extensions, especially for video decoding. So it's a huge driver update for every NVIDIA user. And yes, it's still a beta driver, and but these generally end up being in the stable branch relatively fast. So yeah, there's much to be excited about this if you're an NVIDIA user on Linux. And what would one of these podcasts be without the release of Wine? So we have Wine 8.9, which has an updated Mono engine to run .NET apps on Linux. We have the PostScript driver being fully converted to the PE executable format. And it now also supports Doppler Shift with the Direct Sound API. And it fixes 16 bugs, including for Need for Speed Underground, uh, the Battle.NET launcher, FrameMaker 8, or the Silverlight plugin for some reason. I don't know if anyone still uses that. But if you do, you can use it on Linux now. Probably you can even use it on Linux, but not on Windows anymore. Okay, so this will conclude uh, this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want more details on any of these topics, all the links uh, for the articles are in the show notes. And if you want to support the show and keep it without ads and sponsors, you can also uh, look at the show notes and subscribe on Patreon there or on LibraPay as well. So thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!